Well, I hope you have come hungry today because you are at the all-you-can-eat buffet. You'll go away with stretch marks today, I promise. Uh, you're going to get more than you wanted from the preacher today. I've worked very hard to make sure of that. We are, we're tackling a big passage. We're tackling some big ideas at, at several places. I thought, I just need to cut this in half, but I didn't, so hold on. We should be done. I mean, I know we've got to be done by 11 because there will be another service, so hopefully I'll do just a little bit better than that. But with all that we've got to do, we actually need to start with a little bit of a review for a couple of reasons. One, it has been three weeks since we've been in Ephesians, so you've forgotten everything we've talked about so far. Uh, the other reason is we've, we've done, I guess this is now our eighth message in Ephesians, so it, it's starting to add up, and we want to keep it tied together. We want to keep the thought all working together. The main reason we need to do a review is because we are today with this message making a turn. We're coming to a transition in Paul's message from chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, which is where we ended last. Those verses are pretty much aimed at you. It's all about you, you the individual, and how much God loves you and what He's done to, to demonstrate that love, to bring out that love in your life. Uh, you know, we're supposed to leave that first chapter and a half feeling pretty overwhelmed with all that God has done for us, the individual. But now as we come to chapter 2, verse 11, we're beginning to move now toward the whole. You, you see, God is not just saving individuals. To have a bunch of individuals running around on the planet, rather He is saving us as individuals to bring us into the whole. To bring us into the us. And what we're going to find out with as much focus there has been on the individual, the us is more significant than the you. The us is a bigger part of what God is doing in the world than just the you. And the way that you and I respond to what God has done for us individually is by knowing what God wants to do in and through me with us. Now, us is not always very motivating to us. And so we need to be kind of reminded of what we've learned so we're motivated to live for something bigger than myself and my story, but to live for the whole. So let's think real quickly here about what we have learned so far in the book, in the letter of Paul to the church in Ephesus. Number one... We looked at the purpose of this letter and the purpose of this letter was to make us a team. See, there's that us right away. That was that's the purpose of the whole letter to make us a team, regardless of our positions in life, regardless of our prejudices. Boy, mark that word, because that's what we're getting ready to look at. Regardless of our prejudice, regardless of our problems with each other, we are to come together so that God is glorified. We have seen that in Christ is things that our life wants, our life desperately needs, strength, direction, security. Everything our life needs is found in Christ. We have learned in this letter that the purpose of our lives, the goal of our lives is to bring praise to God. And boy, the Bible fills us with reasons we want to do that. But Ephesians chapter 1 really motivated us with some of the things that God has done in our lives and why we would want to praise Him. We, we saw a father that selected us, a son that sacrificed for us, a Holy Spirit that sealed us. These are reasons we want to give our lives to praising God. We saw that strength and hope. Who doesn't want that? Who doesn't want your life to operate from a position of strength? 
a, a position of hope where there's where there is a confidence, there's a, a positive attitude, there's an excitement about tomorrow. We all want our lives to operate from that. Well, it comes from a growing, thriving relationship with God. And what does a, a growing relationship with God look like? Well, when Paul was praying for us, this was in Ephesians 1, 15-23, when Paul was praying for us, he prayed our relationship with God would grow in three ways. He said, may they grow in hope. Now there the focus is on, God, may you be their hope. Think of all the things we put hope in. we got things this week. I hope this happens this week. we got so many hopes in this world. Paul says, man, I pray they'd come to the place where the one hope, the one desire, the one passion of their life is Jesus Christ. He prays that we would grow in our understanding of just how much we are loved. We hear that all the time, don't we, in church? I hope we do. God loves you. We open up got the Bible. God loves you. Yet Paul says, man, may they grow and grow and grow in the fullness of all that that means. And he says, and may they grow in power in understanding the power that is available to them through this growing relationship with God. So those are some of the elements that, that Paul prays for when we're thinking about a growing relationship. We saw in chapter 2 that we are not okay wasn't a very encouraging message there for a little bit. We're not okay, but the good news is God wants us to be okay and has made a way for us to be okay. Remember that? Those great two words in Ephesians 2, 4. But God. We were dead. But God. God made us alive, raised us up, seated us in the heavens. And then lastly... We learned, and this is so significant, and we're going to see this play out even in today's message, we're not owed all this that God has done. That's hard. We, we th- you know, I, de- I deserve a chance. I, I have rights. I-, I deserve an opportunity. No, you don't. Anything and everything that God has done, and Ephesians 1 through 2 has shown us a lot that God has done, but He didn't do it because we deserved it. He didn't do it because we had a right He didn't do it because he was obligated. It was all driven by grace. And that grace is so important in how we let God work in and through us. That grace is to show how wonderful he is. Now again, as you and I are trying to comprehend all this that God has done, we should, I don't know that we always do, but we should come to the end of that and say, my goodness, hallelujah, praise the Lord, Thank you, Jesus. And it should be the prayer of our lives. How does more and more of my life become about loving this God who loves me so much? Praising this God who's done so much for me and in me. How does more and more of my life become about giving Him thanks? Well, that's what the rest of chapter 2 and 3 is going to start to develop for us. Here's what a life that is responding does. Here's how it joins God in what He's doing in this world. And we're going to see over these next couple messages, it's a challenge. It's not natural for us. And so chapters 4 through 6 is going to give us a lot of the practical, specific instructions about how us becomes an us. About how we become a team. So with all that in mind, are we caught up? Yeah, kind of. You're thinking, oh, this is really going to go long. I can tell already. Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 11. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. It says there, So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, by those called the circumcised, done by hand in the flesh. 
At the time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, with no hope and without God in the world. You know, that, that last phrase has got to be one of the saddest statements in the world, isn't it? Without God in the world. But look what follows by. I think one of the most beautiful verses in all of Scripture. Verse two, chapter 2, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near. You've been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. For He is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In His flesh, He did away with the law of commandments and regulations so that He might create in Himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that He might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. When Christ came, He proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone. The whole building is being fitted together in Him and is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. That's a lengthy passage A lot of phrases we're not used to hearing or using. I mean, let's be honest. The practicality of this passage doesn't just leap off the page at us. I mean, here's the very simple message of this passage. You, as Gentiles, and I are one with the Jews. (laughs) Woohoo! Yay! And now what? (laughs) That's not really what I was hoping for this week. To be one with the Jews. Now, that doesn't really necessarily hit us. We don't think... I mean, did you notice here there's a lot of words, hostility, tension. There is a rift between Jew and Gentile. Well, most of us today are not feeling that. We're not experiencing that. That's not really an issue in our lives. That's what, not what we're looking to be resolved as we think about what we've got to deal with this week. What we're going to see, though, as we dive into this passage in its context, is it actually is a pretty big deal that you and I are now one with the Jews. We're also going to see, though, a very real principle rise up out of this that affects how you and I approach people in the church and approach people in the world. Now, our focus, when I say people today, I'm not talking about unbelievers today. We're talking about our relationship, our commitment to, our involvement with believers in here and around the world. And this passage gives some very specific instruction. You know, I don't need any of this. You know what? There's a God who has greatly, greatly loved you. And if you want to move in line with that God, if you want to move in concert with what He's doing in your life, you need to know the truth of this passage. And again, it starts off with this conflict between Jew and Gentile. What happened there? Let's get a little bit of a background. Can we? One other passage we're going to look at today. Would you turn to Genesis chapter 12? Beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at a short passage here. Verses 1 to 3. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 12, verse 1. It says there, The Lord said to Abram, Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What you see in this passage is the genesis, no pun intended, is the genesis, the beginning of God's people. God went into the world and He picked out one man. I don't know how many people were on the planet at this day. I'm sure there was at least several hundred thousand, maybe a million. Certainly wasn't a billion at this time. But there was a lot of people. And God picked just one. He selected one. And that selection there in Genesis 12 looks a lot like what we discussed in Ephesians chapter 1 when we saw that God selected us out of the whole world. He selected them. Now, He didn't select them, same as when He selected us. He didn't select them because of how good Abram had been up to that point. He didn't select them because of what He saw in Abram and what Abram would do. As a matter of fact, when Abram at this point was coming out of a pagan, idol-worshipping family. God didn't select him based on him. What drove that selection was God's grace. And it was grace that drove that selection. It was grace that provided these, these promises and all these great blessings. But you know, when you stop and think about that, now wait a minute. God doing that means that Abram and his, his family, his descendants, which became the, the nation of Israel, meant they got to be God's people. Well, I didn't get to be God's people. Well, why didn't God choose my family to be God's people? Why didn't my family get to be the one with, with all the promises and, and get to be... I seemed kind of left out. And all of a sudden now there's this kind of rift. There was a people who were chosen and a people who were not. And the Jews kind of picked that up. And you know they developed kind of an elitist attitude. We were picked. You weren't. And that began a rift. A prejudice started. Now, the question is, when you consider that is actually what God did. He did pick an individual. He did pick a family by default, meaning the others were not picked. Does that mean God didn't care about the rest of the planet? God didn't have a, a plan or a desire for, the, for all the other peoples? I want you to notice something extremely important that Judaic history missed. Look at the last phrase of this great promise in 12, 1 to 3. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God did have a desire and God did have a plan to reach all the peoples of the earth. He did not select one so that that one, that family, that nation could become the sole recipient of God's goodness and blessings. He selected that one to be a conduit by which His blessing would flow. They never really picked up that idea. They never really picked up on that call of God in their lives. And hence began this, this prejudice, this separation. Now, just for a moment here, lest you think I'm picking on the Jews, the Jews are representative of all of our problem. You know what the problem is? You look at any human tension from a marriage to nations at war. You look at human tension, you look at human conflict, and at the center of it is pride, prejudice, and selfishness. Turn on the news. Watch all of the bad stuff going on. Every bit of it is centered on an individual, a family, or a nation's pride, prejudice, and selfishness. Now, can you imagine God watching CNN? Can you imagine God looking down on this planet, all this anger, this frustration, this separation, this I'm better than you, I deserve more than you, I, you're not like me, all that pushing away that we do. Can you imagine God looking down in the midst of all that and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take all these people and out of their lives, I'm going to build a house 
that worships and exalts me. Oh, that's impossible. (laughs) You can't do that. Oh, yes, he can. That's exactly what we're looking at right here. Now, you know, let's take this off the nation for the moment. Let's just think about ourselves. When God blesses you, what do you think that's for? Is God's blessing in your life about? Well, it's, it's about my life. God's blessing is about my life, my story, my well-being. My, it's about building the Randy Hahn kingdom. That's what blessing is all about. Or is God's blessing something that flows through me to other individuals, to other families, to a world? Good question, isn't it? I think for most of us, we're not where we need to be. Folks, God, God blesses to flow through us. He doesn't bless to bloat us. I think the American mentality of blessing is bloat me. Fill me up. Make my life everything I want it to be and need it to be. And that's kind of the way the Jews took God's blessing. Bless us. Bless our nation and let it stop right here with me. Because after all, we are better than everybody else. God says, no, that's not what we're doing. Now, let's go back to our passage in Ephesians. You see there, we've got the beginning, a group that was selected and everybody else that wasn't. We come into chapter 11. Now, Paul is writing Gentiles. The, the, the believers, the church in Ephesus is primarily Gentiles. I'm not saying there's no Jews in it, but it was not primarily a Jewish Christian church. It was a Gentile Christian church. Now, we, I'm throwing this word Gentile around. Who are the Gentiles? You are a Gentile. A Gentile is anyone that is not Jewish. I mean, in our, in our day, a Gentile is, is American, French, Russian, Chinese. It doesn't matter what religion. They, they can worship Allah or Buddha. They can worship Greek gods or Roman gods. You can worship your big toe. It doesn't really matter. You're either a Jew or a Gentile. And that's the way the Jews' mindset was. You're either Jewish or you're one of everybody else. And they didn't want anything to do with everybody else. And Paul is reminding these Gentiles, you are in that position. There is a separation between you and God's people. And you did not have the advantages. Now, Paul's not talking about the prejudice here. He's not talking about the problem that resulted in this. He's talking about as a Gentile, you didn't have what the Jews had. And in verse 12, he enumerates those for us. He says, first of all, he says, you're without the Messiah. Now there, he's not just talking about the the person of Jesus Christ, even the idea of a Messiah. Gentiles had no hope of a deliverer. They had no hope of somebody come and and eradicating sin and eradicating the problems in the world. They, They didn't have that kind of hope. They were alienated from citizenship in Israel. That means I'm not a member of the country and I'm never going to be a citizen of the country that was a recipient of all God's blessings, that was a recipient of His revelation and His truth. I, I, I didn't get that. He says, as Gentiles, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. You know what? I didn't have any knowledge as a Gentile. I didn't have any knowledge of a promise that God made to Abraham about land and blessings. I had no knowledge of it. I had no take on that promise. I had no knowledge that a promise was made to David that from your line will come a king that will reign forever. I mean, wouldn't that be cool to know that that my team has the guy on top forever and ever and ever? That's what a lot of wars are about. That's what a lot of the fight... I, I want my group to be on top. 
And that's what the promise was there. Out of your line, David, will reign a king for eternity. But I had no knowledge of that promise. I had no take on that. I had no knowledge of a promise that God made to the Israelites. One day, I will write my law on your heart. My law, my character will be inside of you, will be a a part of you. As a Gentile, I had no knowledge of that. I had no take on that. Paul says, not only that, you were without hope. Now, there the idea is, you know what? We didn't have the Bible. Gentiles didn't have the revelation of God's Word. We do live in a chaotic, messed up world. We live in a world where there is a lot of injustice. And you know what? You and I have the ability to open God's Word and see that in the midst of chaos, in the midst of violence, in the midst of injustice, there is a God of order. There is a God of purpose. There is a God working. There is a God who is going to come and bring justice who's going to make wrongs right. You and I go to His Word and it encourages us. It gives us hope. But as Gentiles, they didn't have a word to go to. They were without that hope as they turned on CNN. That They were without that hope as they dealt with day in and day out a fallen world. And then lastly, it says they were without God. The word there for without God is atheos. We get our English word atheist. From that. Now, when we use the word atheist, we're applying that to somebody who, who says, I don't, I don't believe in a God. I don't believe there's any God. I don't, I don't believe in the, in the spiritual realm. But here, Paul is applying that to people who were not awe-spiritual. They, they worshipped a, a multitude of gods, and yet he's saying you were without God. Because, you see, if you don't have the one true God, it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter how many gods you worship. If you're without the one true one, you are atheos. You are atheist. You're without God in this world. Man, that's the condition they were in. They had no access to God. They had no knowledge of God. They didn't have any of the advantage of the Jews. Now, I say this over and over. You remember in verse, verse 4, those two great words, but God. We were dead, but God. Well, we see now another great contrast in chapter 2, verse 13. In 2, 4, it was, but God. In 2, 13, it is, but now. I, I, I was in that position of having no access to God, having none of the advantages. But now, now in Christ Jesus, I've been brought near. Doesn't that feel good to be brought near? And being brought near always feels good. Whether I'm being brought near into the inner circle, whether I'm being brought near into the information, I'm on the inside now, I'm in the know, or whether it's being brought near into membership, I'm a part, or whether it's being brought near into intimacy. Man, it's always good. It's always right to be brought near. And you have been brought near in Christ Jesus. wasn't an easy process. It was a very costly process. You didn't pay for it. No, it happened by His blood. It was Christ's sacrifice on the cross that paid for you to be brought near. It was His blood that redeemed you and I. It literally bought us back from our sin. It bought us back from hell. We were redeemed by the blood. We were reconciled by that blood. We were brought back into friendship with God. And we were brought into... And this is what we're beginning to develop now in Ephesians. We were brought into reconciliation with each other. We now have an opportunity to have a principle in operation in our life other than prejudice and pride and selfishness. There's going to be something else now in operation. So we can be reconciled. That is the power of the blood 
of Jesus Christ. What an awesome work that He has done. Now, as we move into verses 14 and 18, Paul begins to address this problem, this prejudice, and what God did to break through it. What God did to tear that down. And it starts off there in in verse 14. It talks about Jesus being our peace and making both groups one. And how He did that was tearing down this dividing wall of hostility. God had to tear down a wall of separation. There was a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. And it started in the law. It was the law of God that said you are to be separate from them. You're not to intermarry with them. And God's reason for them, very sad here, a lot of people have used that idea actually to promote, unfortunately Christians have done this, to promote racism. This is nothing about race. This is about saying you are to be separate from influences that you bring into your life that will push you toward pagan idol worship. We looked at that last week, didn't we? When we did the Lord's Supper and we started off looking at Solomon. Solomon intermarried. He brought, he brought unbelievers into his life into a position of influence where he could be pulled away from the one true living God. And so God said, you're to, be, you're to come out from them. You're to be separate from them. You're not to allow them to have a position in your life of influence that pulls you away from me. But God's law of separation was not the author of hatred and prejudice because we're still to be a blessing to that world. Genesis 12.3. We're still to go into that world and share the good news of the gospel. But the Jews did pick that up as a prejudice. And you know what? Actually, that prejudice, it kind of got started right. You see, what happened is the beginning of this, the beginning of this command to be separate, the Jews almost always completely disobeyed and disregarded that. Again, we saw that with Solomon. And for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, they continued to let unbelievers into their culture. And instead of going into those relationships, into those cultures to influence, they allowed it vice versa. Those cultures and those influences to come in for them. And they constantly reverted to pagan worship. Well, what that resulted in God's punishment was in 722 uh, B.C., the Assyrians came in, they conquered the ten northern tribes and exiled them out of the land. And then in 586 B.C., Babylon came and got the rest, the last two tribes, uh, uh, Judah and Benjamin. They were exiled. And so at that point, major breaking point in Jewish history, up to that point, they had constantly not been separated. Well, as they begin to return to the land... And we enter what we call the intertestamental period. The Old Testament is over and there's about 400 years of silence. And then the New Testament begins. In that intertestamental period when the Jews returned, they became intensely monotheistic. One God. And they became intensely separated from others. Now, part of that is good. Part of that was solving a problem that they never resolved for hundreds and hundreds of years. But what happened then is they used that separation again to become the author, to become the product of racism, prejudice, and hatred. It's out of that that you hear all the problems. Samaritans. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan and the Jews' hatred of Samaritans. They hated the Romans. They hated. Their, their separation led to hatred. Well, what happens here is in 2.14, God, Paul says, Hey, listen, these people you hate, these people you're separated from, they can all say now, Jesus is my peace. The idea is very simple. If the Jew can say, 
Jesus is my peace. And the Gentile can say, Jesus is my peace. That fact, that identity ought to be bigger than Jewishness. It ought to be bigger than Gentileness. What Jesus is doing here, is, and, and again, we're, we're, we, we're not that bothered by Jew and Gentile. That's not what we're thinking about today. But if that's true for Jew and Gentile, shouldn't it be true for everything else? Shouldn't that be true for black and white? Shouldn't it be true for male and female? Shouldn't it be true from one denomination to another denomination? Folks, the fact that an individual... Now, again, we're talking about believers, not unbelievers. I'm talking about believers. A believer, if they can say, Jesus is my peace, and I can say, Jesus is my peace, that thing, that statement ought to be bigger than any of the subgroups in life that we belong to. No subgroup should rise above that statement. Which then means, if I understand, now God's love has brought me into this group. God's love has given me the ability to say, Jesus is my peace. But if I'm appropriately responding to that, that means I'm appropriately responding to everybody else that can say, Jesus is my peace. You know, what's interesting about that word peace is it's two-pronged. You know, it, it means at simple level, everything's okay. It has the idea of well-being. It means that it is the absence of anything negative and it is the presence of all that is positive. It is the absence of hostility. It is the presence of friendship. You realize how important both of those are? You know, we, we could say there, you know, th this, these two people are not hostile to each other. These two nations are not hostile to each other. That doesn't mean we're friends. See, this word peace means both. You see, I might say, well, I'm not racist. I'm not hostile toward another race. I'm not hostile toward another nation. That doesn't mean I'm friends. See, Jesus has brought me into a peace that, yes, certainly means the absence of hostility, but it also means the presence of friendship. We're to have an attitude in our lives of moving in relationship with other believers. Certainly, first and foremost, the ones that reside right here in our same church. But around all the world, we're to move in concert. And Paul then not only says, did God tear down this law of separation or tear down this wall, but the way he did that, because remember, it was God that had a law that said we're to be separate. God disengaged the law. And how did He do that? In the flesh, on the cross. It was Jesus that disengaged the law. Jesus fulfilled the law on your behalf and on my behalf. It says He did away with commandments. You start to scratch your head there and say, now, what, what is, does that mean we don't have to obey the Bible anymore? Or, or in this case, does that mean we don't have to obey the Old Testament? I, I, I don't have to obey the law anymore? That's a tricky question. Did you know the answer is well, kind of yes and kind of no? No, you and I do not obey the law as a way of gaining access to God. We don't gain access to God through animal sacrifices and through temple worship. We don't gain access to God by our ability to keep the Ten Commandments. We don't gain access to that anymore because it never worked to begin with. We couldn't do it. Our sin kept us from doing it. So because of our inability, Jesus came. He kept the law. He met the law. He fulfilled the law. And then He died for all the places that you and I broke the law. And so now the law is no longer in operation in my life. My access to God is through Jesus Christ. 
And the New Testament becomes the first and foremost guide in my life. Now, I am not separating old and new. And I believe strongly against people who say we don't need the Old Testament. All of God's Word, Genesis to Revelation, is His Word. All of it is for our benefit. We learn a great deal about the character of God in the Old Testament. And you will find that many, if not most, of the commands in the Old Testament are repeated in the New Testament. But if something is in the Old not in the New, we don't have to do it. Like the animal sacrifices. Matter of fact, I'm going to throw you all for a real loop. Now you're going to think, Pastor's gone crazy. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. And what does that mean? <laughs> that means one of them wasn't repeated. There was one of the Big Ten that didn't make it in the New Testament. You know which command that is? The Sabbath. We no longer gain access to God by observing a particular day with things that we don't do on that day and with things that we do on that day. Some of you are right now saying, praise God, I knew we didn't have to go to church every Sunday. I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. And he just confirmed it. That is not at all what I'm saying. As a matter of fact, if you will turn to Hebrews chapter 10, it commands you to go to church and gather with other believers. But you know what it leaves out? It doesn't mention a day. There is not a command that says, this is the day that believers meet. Some of you are thinking, he is so wrong. I'm going to go. Most, some of you will do more study in the Bible this week than you've done in years. Go find it. There is not a single passage that says Sunday is the day of worship for a believer. You will find in Acts that the practice of the New Testament church, they began to meet on the first day of the week as a celebration of the resurrection. But there is no command that says Sunday is the day of of worship. As a matter of fact, what you'll find in Galatians is a New Testament believer, we don't observe days. We're not commanded to observe Christmas. We're not commanded to observe Easter. We're not commanded to observe the Passover. And we're not commanded that one day is the only day of worship. Yes, I actually believe we could gather together and worship on Thursday as a regular practice. And that would not be offensive to God. It would not be against the New Testament. I don't think it'd be very smart. Most of the community tried to figure out what we were doing. I don't think that'd be the thing we ought to do. And yes, we see throughout church history, it was the practice that Sunday be that day. But it is not a command. I don't become more pleasurable to God because I observe a particular day and do certain things and don't do certain things. Jesus fulfilled all that for me. Now, let me say it again, though. You are commanded to meet regularly with believers when the local body of believers that you're a part of meets so we're commanded to do that. But it's not the day that makes it worship. It's not the temple that makes it worship. It's not about the building. It's what's going on inside of us. And of course, that's what makes this peace. That's what the, Jesus has fulfilled the law. And now God doesn't live in a temple. And that's what all this is about. Jesus says the reason God is bringing these different races and these different subgroups and these different people and Jew and Gentile together is because God's building a house. God is building a house of people, not bricks and sticks. They're not decorated with, with carpet and, and, and paint and, and, and wall hangings. No, it's decorated with, with different races and with different tongues and with different tribes and different nations. But you know what happens? I mean, humanly speaking, I get put into my spot in the building and lo and behold, God comes over here and, and puts an African Christian next to me. 
And he puts a charismatic up here on top of me. Wait a minute, Lord. I'm not comfortable with this. You know, I'm not like that. They're not like me. No, Lord, I don't think my group's better anyway. I think I should be around more people of my group. Paul says, uh-uh. No, no, no. If they can say, Jesus is my peace. We have one household. We have one community of faith. And there is no subgroup that defines any aspect of that. As a matter of fact, there's only three parts to this house. There's Jesus. He's the cornerstone. The cornerstone is, is that part of the building that everything else in the building is measured by. You know, in our day and age, cornerstones are, they go in at the end of the building. They're just there for, for decoration, for, for symbol. But in this day and age, cornerstone was the first thing laid. And everything in the building was centered off the cornerstone, was measured off the cornerstone. So you see, everything in this building is not based on subgroups and likes and dislikes. It's centered and measured off of Jesus Christ. The other part of this building is the the foundation, which is the apostles and prophets. Who are they? They are those people who were divinely sent with a divine message. They revealed God's truth. So the foundation is Jesus and His revealed truth. For you and I, the foundation is Jesus and the Bible. And then there's everybody else. No, No delineation no different subgroups. Now, I like what God says here. He says in the uh, middle of verse 21 that we're being fitted together. You see, that's a process we don't know about in our building either because you can go down to our new building down there and you've got, you've got foundation stone and, and you've got decorative stone and you've got brick and you know what? It all goes together. It all fits perfectly. And do you know why it fits perfectly? Mortar. Mortar fills in all the gaps. Mortar makes it fit tight. They weren't using mortar. And so when they're building this wall, it comes to a spot and the builder sees, okay, I need this. And he goes over and he picks out the perfect stone for that next spot. The stone, I mean, there's all kinds of stones here, but he's looking for the one that will best fit into that next spot. So he picks the stone up, carries it over there, but it doesn't fit perfectly yet. He's got to shape it. He's got to cut it. He's got to sand it because it's got to fit perfectly tight. Mortar's not going to keep the air out. It's got to fit perfectly. So he fits it in there perfect. Now, folks, when you and I are loved by God, rescued from sin and hell, and we're brought into His family, we're brought into the church, capital C, big church, the the church of all peoples, of all times, of all believers. But when it talks about this process of being fitted, folks, I I see the local church there. You you weren't just put on the wall anywhere. God said, oh, just, just go on into the house and find a spot. No, God took you and He fitted you specifically. He fitted you perfectly into an exact spot in the building. Which means, folks, when you become a part of Colonial Heights Baptist Church, it's not just your choice. Or any other church for that matter. And and it's not just, well, you know, just landed here, you've got to pick one. Man, when you're in this church, you're here specifically and perfectly by God's design. He placed you perfectly in this spot. Well, that raises a big question. Am I fulfilling the reason God put me in this part of His massive building? He put me in the Colonial Heights Baptist part of this massive building of praise. Am I doing what God put me here to do? Why are you here? I'm here to be blessed. Well, we got kind of a consumer mentality about the church today, don't we? We treat the church just like a mall. I go to there. Does it meet my needs? Do I find what I need there? You know what? As pastor, I hope we are meeting your needs. I hope you do find what you as an individual or you as a family are looking for. 
But boy, don't we see from the Jews, don't we see from God's plan that being blessed, being filled, being ministered to is not just so that we can get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, filled up with blessing. God doesn't bless to bloat. God blesses to pour through. Are you fulfilling your role in this church? If you're not, then you are not responding appropriately to everything we learned about in Ephesians 1.1 through 2.10. Man, if I'm going to respond to God's love, I've got to move in concert with people. I've got to move in concert with believers, first and foremost in the local church and throughout the world. And what we see there is there is no room. There's no room for disunity. I am in no way, shape, or form responding to God's love if I'm a part of disunity, if I'm a part of prejudice. I I can't come into this and receive blessing, but not be a blessing. I want God to pour through me.